Before we get to the regularly scheduled program, we have a quick question that we need your help with. We've been thinking a lot about the COVID vaccine, and we're curious. How do you feel about getting it? Are you like amped to inject the vaccine into your veins? Are you nervous or skeptical? No matter where you are on that spectrum, we want to hear like what's going through your mind, your thought process. Yes. So email us at codeswitch at npr.org with the subject line COVID vaccine and let us know how you're feeling and how you feel race might play into how you're feeling. Now on to the show. I'm Gene Demby. I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji, and this is Code Switch. From NPR. Happy New Year, everybody, a.k.a. Code Switchers. Happy New Year. Gene, are we calling our listeners Code Switchers? Uh, I've been doing that a little bit lately, but I don't know if I even like it. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, imagine someone's like, hello, I'm Megan, and I'm a Code Switcher. And we're like, are you though? <laughs> so, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I think those. we should call them our CPT family. <laughs> He's still trying I to make CPT happen. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will always try to make CPT happen. CPT was one of anyway. the, the, the mock name, the, the sort of in uh, production names of Code Switch. Anyway, not to steer things back to what's important or what's, you know, depressing. But I'm going to. It is the new year. But, you know, same worldwide pandemic, you know, as if any of us could forget. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't forget. I want to forget. I've lost family members this year to COVID. Uh, my friends have lost family members. It's been uh, really hard, actually, to stay focused and keep on working. Although I have to say I am very grateful that I have work. I'm trying to really focus on gratitude this year. Um, so many people have lost their jobs. And because of the way that COVID has upended all of our lives in different ways, we've been talking a lot about health and healthcare, who has access to it. And for those of us who do who's getting better care, and why they're getting better care. The longer we live like this, Gene, the more we can sort of clearly see how certain parts of the conversation are, yes, very specific to this particular pandemic, but others are just extensions of age-old problems that have long made some of us much more vulnerable than others. Mm-hmm. And today on the show, we're bringing you a story that illustrates some of those inequities that plague our healthcare system. This story that you're going to hear was first aired as part of the documentary podcast from the BBC World Service, and it was made possible through funding from the NYU Reporting Award and the Wickers Radio and Audio Funding Award. It's the story of two friends, one black, one white, both facing an aggressive cancer and the very different ways that played out for each of them. And we're going to hear that story after a quick break. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Marguerite Casey Foundation, creating greater freedom for changemakers to create a truly representative economy. Marguerite Casey Foundation believes working people and their families should have the power to shape our institutions, our democracy, and our economy. Shifting power, powering freedom. Learn more about the foundation at www.caseygrants.org and connect with the foundation on Twitter at Casey Grants and on Facebook. Support also comes from Best Fiends. If you find yourself choosing the longest checkout line, that can only mean one thing. 
you've downloaded Best Fiends, the five-star rated mobile puzzle game, which means where others see a hassle, all you see is a chance to play one more level a few more times. Turn dull moments into pockets of fun. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. LifeKit is rethinking New Year's resolutions. All this January, we're thinking about both really big and really small changes. If you're wanting to change up your life and start fresh, we've got you covered. If you're looking to just make your home a little nicer, we got you there too. Listen now to the LifeKit podcast from NPR. Ow. <laughs> okay. My name is Tariqa Haunton and I'm from the beautiful country of Jamaica. I just wanna say that I'm happy to be here. I'm happy that I met Ibi Caputo. She is very moody at times, but she understands my crazy. So we're perfect. The yin to my yang, literally black and white. I could listen to Tarika's laugh again and again. I'm Ibi Caputo, the yin to her yang, the white to her black. Tarika and I called ourselves blood sisters because we were a tight-knit support group of two. In the nine years we knew each other, there was one story we would tell every time we saw each other, the story of how we met. Okay, let's just tell this story. Let's tell the story. <laughs> I walk in, I'm very tiny. I'm shaky, and I have a cane, and I'm bald. And she wore those horrible chemo hats. Shoot me now. <laughs> and I was wearing my favorite bright pink sweater because I wanted to look good for, for my doctor. horrible, cliche. It was 2008, and I had just walked into the blood lab at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston for my weekly blood check. Whenever I saw someone in the waiting room around my age, I tried to sit next to them because it's lonely being a young adult with cancer. So I sit down and I'm like, I like your style. And so I say, tongs. And then I realize she's not gonna understand. I said, thank you. Because that was Patua. <laughs> and then I look and I see her wristband and I'm like, she's sick. And I said, it's not my usual clinic day. I'm here for a consult for transplant. And she said, oh. I did a transplant too. Actually, it was more like, that's what I just did. And she's like, I did not expect this at 26. And I gave her the look like, what the hell? My friend looked old. I thought I looked like a 12 year old. No. You mean I looked like an 82 year old? Like, yeah, you looked old. You look. I wouldn't guess 26. 20s would never be in my mind. So I'm like, oh my God, this, what I'm going to go through is horrible. And I was like, oh my God, I just totally scared this woman. She's not going to get the bone marrow transplant now and she's going to die of leukemia. Trika was also 26 at the time. And she had the same type of aggressive leukemia that I had had. The only cure was a stem cell transplant, also known as a bone marrow transplant. And then you said... Don't worry, everybody's different. You make me sound better than I sounded. It was more like, everybody's <laughs> different. <laughs> and so I think it made me feel better in the sense that 
it's a good thing you mentioned all the issues you had, but then you were still hopeful. So it's like, worst case scenario, I catch all this shit, then I'm still here. Soon after we met, Tarika did have a bone marrow transplant. She was the only other person I knew who understood what it was like. The side effects of transplant, the puffiness of steroids. We could talk about it all, and we made each other laugh. <laughs> Pause, let me laugh. <laughs> you can laugh. <laughs> the bone marrow is the factory for making the blood. Cancer had infiltrated our blood, and the only way to rid ourselves of that cancer was to get a new factory. For us, that meant injecting blood stem cells from a healthy donor, which would create new marrow. That new marrow would then make blood that was cancer-free. We both received stem cells from anonymous donors, men we did not know. We talk about them sometimes. I was fascinated that I now bleed my donor's blood complete with his DNA and XY chromosomes. My blood is male. What is it like for you having somebody else's blood run through your body? Do you think of it as his blood or do you think of it as your blood? I own that What? What? Whose blood? The recovery from transplant is long and complicated. After seven years, I was finally emerging from the side effects. But Tarika was still in the thick of it. She wanted to meet her donor in person, but not yet. Because I've been roller coasting through my health. I'm looking for a time where I'm looking good. Never want to meet your donor. Looking like, this is what my blood did to you. It should be like, this is what my blood did. <laughs> and wh why, why do you want to meet him? Because I want to touch him. I want to hold him. I want to love him for the rest of my life. What? That kind of sound creepy. Why I want to meet him? I think it would be awesome for him to see what I look like in person. And like the life he saved. He, his blood yes. saved you. His blood saved me. When you get a bone marrow transplant, what you're really getting is a new immune system. So it affects your whole body. And there are opportunities for things to go wrong. Trika didn't end up meeting her donor because she never completely recovered from transplant. In 2017, she died. After her death, I thought a lot about our donors. My donor was a German man. He and I were a so-called perfect match, meaning all of the immune system genes that the doctors checked for in me were identical in him. This is important because the better the match, the less likely your new immune system will attack your own body. Tarika didn't have a perfect match, but she did have a really good match, a match her doctors told her would work. And it did work. Her new bone marrow killed the leukemia, and those of us who loved her got to spend nine cancer-free years with her. But she was also plagued by the side effects of transplant, which is a risk that comes with a potentially life-saving cure. My own doctor has told me I'm fortunate to have emerged relatively unscathed, and this is true. But it's also true that as a white person, 
I was three times more likely than a black person to find a perfect match. After Tarika's death, I wondered about this glaring disparity and how it plays a part in who is more likely to live and who is more likely to die from blood cancer. What I found is an all too familiar story. Really, a broken record. This is democracy now. Democracy Not long after Tarika died, I started hearing news reports like this one. A nationwide campaign has been launched to find a blood stem cell donor for a 29-year-old journalist who was recently diagnosed with an aggressive form of leukemia. Lina Anwar desperately needs a stem cell transplant, but she doesn't match any of her family members or any of the 19 million people in a national registry. A campaign urging people of South Asian descent was launched to donate stem cells to— Lina Anwar, a 29-year-old American journalist of South Asian descent, needed a transplant to treat the same aggressive leukemia Tarika and I had suffered from. But there was no donor match for her, not in the registry in the U.S., or in any bone marrow registry in the world. Because when it comes to matching bone marrow, ethnicity matters. We are all different across the world, and where you come from happens to affect what your HLA type may be. Vikram Patanayak is the director of the Histocompatibility Lab at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. His lab determines whether a donor's HLA type matches a patient's. HLA stands for human leukocyte antigen, a cluster of immune system genes. And so it's easiest to get matched to somebody who shares your ancestry. But the biggest registries in the world are in the U.S. and Germany, and most of the donors on these registries are white people descended from Europe. A spokesperson from the U.S. registry, known as Be The Match, says they've done market research to try to understand the lack of diverse participation. She says the biggest challenge is that many people aren't aware that donors are needed, that ethnicity matters, and even that the registry exists. Joining the registry is as simple as signing up online and mailing in a cheek swab. We need to get as many people in these registries as possible because if you are from a minority population, You need all of the chances to find a match as you possibly can. And it is all about chances. My name is Abbas Anwar. I'm Lina's older brother. You know, I told Lina that I was going to do this interview, and she she knew. She knew about you. And while she doesn't know you personally, she she had heard about you, so she told me a little bit about it. Yeah, I am. I think as a fellow journalist, I just... It's amazing because I've never met your sister, but I'm really, really thinking about her. Yeah, and thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. When Lina Anwar didn't have a match on the registry, her friends and family connected with Be The Match to get more people of South Asian descent to sign up. They also held donor drives in India. Thousands of people joined the registry on behalf of Lina. And while we didn't find anyone for Lina, um, the last I heard, there, there have been five different matches for other people due to the efforts from the campaign to get more people on the registry for Lina. Which means five more people got the chance to be cured. So the efforts to diversify the registry did pay off, just not for Lina. But Lina did still get a transplant. So they used me as the donor. I was uh, about a 60% match. Medicine has evolved in the more than decades since I had a transplant. 
Back then, not having a match on the registry was a death sentence. The fact that Abbas could be his sister's match represents a major breakthrough in bone marrow transplantation. And it's opened up transplants to ethnic groups that really couldn't have transplants before. Rick Jones is the director of bone marrow transplantation at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, where the protocol for this type of transplant was developed. Lina's brother was what's called a haplo-identical match, basically a half-match. Abbas and his sister had some identical genes, and others were mismatched. But doctors at Johns Hopkins figured out that if they give the patient a specific chemotherapy drug after transplant, a family member that's a half-match can be as good as a perfect match on the registry. All parents are half-match donors. All children are half-match donors. Half of your siblings are half-match donors. This means that many people who don't have a match, especially those from ethnicities that are underserved by the registry, can still get a potentially life-saving treatment. Dr. Jones says this is crucial for Johns Hopkins because the population surrounding the hospital in Baltimore is majority African-American. And we aren't serving our population unless we look for a way to do transplants in them. If we can't treat African-Americans, we're not doing our job. This medical advancement is a big deal. It's an example of how science can be used to narrow the gap on some disparities. It has and will continue to help doctors save many lives that otherwise would not have been saved. But it doesn't change the fact that white people with European ancestry have more opportunities to find the best possible match and we have better outcomes overall. Abbas says that after transplant, his sister Lina was doing really, really well for about six months. But by the time we talked in March, things had changed. Um, Lina, Lina unfortunately relapsed a couple months ago, so she's, uh, she's actually back in the hospital getting, um, getting some treatment, some chemo, and it's, it's actually not a great situation from her end, but she's hanging in there. On March 26th, nine months after her transplant, Lina Anwar died. She was 30. When Lina died, her family and friends gathered online because of COVID-19 restrictions. Imam Khalid Latif led them in prayer. Our sister Lina was battling leukemia for quite some time. And many of you, mashallah, came together to ensure that not just for her, but for a quite large underrepresented demographic also in need of transplants. Thousands of people were registered and swabbed and there are so many others who are going to be able to find their own healing because of the efforts that you put in that she again becomes the catalyst for. I started reporting this story because my friend died, and then a fellow journalist died, and I'm still standing. And I wondered, why? Everybody always wants to know exactly, you know, what was the point at which the outcome was, was determined. Stephanie Lee is the current president of the American Society of Hematology and a transplant doctor at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle. 
And I just think, you know, as with most of medicine, it is so complicated, it can be very hard to tell that. I know, it is complicated. After Tarika died, I was devastated, and I wanted answers. So I investigated the disparity in the registry, but that couldn't tell me why she died. In fact, nothing could. But in the process of looking, I began to see that there was something much bigger going on. Maybe Tarika and Lina's deaths are like hurricanes. It's not possible to say that any one powerful storm is caused by climate change, but we know that hurricanes in general are strengthened by warming waters. I know it's not possible to pinpoint exactly why either of these two women died, but still, hurricanes. Dr. Lee has studied disparities in blood cancer treatment and survival rates. And the message is always the same, which is that some populations are not doing as well when they get these diagnoses. And why is that and what can we do about it? When diagnosed with blood cancer, most people of color, especially African-American and Hispanic patients, are more likely than whites to die of the disease. You know, given the disparities that exist in this country, it's not surprising that they would also exist in in medical procedures. Blacks, Hispanics, and most people of color are also less likely than whites to get a bone marrow transplant. A lot of what we think is happening is people not getting to the transplant center, either themselves or their doctors not thinking that this is a reasonable treatment for them and not referring them. There was a paper published in 2019 in the Journal of Clinical Oncology that looked at what researchers call barriers to transplant. The paper questioned if transplant was a miracle treatment for the few, but off-limits to many. People who could benefit from a bone marrow transplant aren't getting them for a variety of reasons. If a patient doesn't have someone who can take at least three months off work to care for them full-time after transplant, doctors may choose not to transplant them. If they don't live near a transplant center or can't afford to pay for accommodation near a center, then they may not be able to get a transplant. If a person has other health problems or mental health issues or a history of not complying with medical advice, then they may not be considered for transplant. If a person is uninsured or has inadequate insurance, they may not be able to get a transplant. In other words, many of the disparities in bone marrow transplantation are systemic issues that plague American society and its healthcare system. Poverty, social inequality, unequal access to health care and health insurance. What struck me was that it seems that a lot of the barriers, they appear to be the same barriers that you see in other aspects of medicine. And in fact, now with COVID, like the same kind of barriers that are making it much more likely that black and brown people are going to die of COVID. And I'm wondering if that's a fair assessment. I, I think that is a fair assessment. COVID is really highlighted the disparities. And that's not even talking about transplant, right? That's just talking about who gets diseases and how they're treated and um, what the final outcome is. This is the broken record. It plays over and over and over again. For people of color, especially for African-Americans, pervasive and chronic inequalities are baked into almost every aspect of American life. Everywhere you look, it's the same story reinforcing itself, difficult to untangle. That's why it's called systemic racism. 
Dr. Lee acknowledges that there are some studies that show that patients who actually make it to transplant have similar outcomes regardless of their race and ethnicity. But in other studies, you still see the same disparities in outcomes after transplant. I think the key take-home point is that, with very rare exceptions, do you ever find these groups doing better? They may do the same, which is what we hope for, um, but many of them are saying they do worse, and very, very vanishingly few are showing that they do better. And so when you see that sort of consistent message across multiple studies using different techniques in different populations, then I think you can actually really believe it. It's really not that hard to believe. Evelyn Hammonds is the chair of the Department of the History of Science at Harvard University and a professor of African and African-American studies. Race and institutional racism is not something that most physicians have to think about. And that's just connected to the ways in which most white people don't have to think about what white privilege and what white supremacy really means. And that is as true in the medical profession as it is in the legal profession, as it is among the police, and et cetera, et cetera. As I read more and more about racial and ethnic disparities in bone marrow transplantation, it became clear that there was one glaring omission from nearly all of the papers on it. The insidious culprit was not named. Racism. Structural, systemic, institutional racism. And I'm wondering, is it important for, is it important for that to be named? Oh, I think it's profoundly important for it to be named. And I think this is the moment when we're finally scholars and activists, as well as medical researchers and practitioners, are beginning to name it. I've examined my experience with cancer from all different angles, from what it was like to go through treatment-induced menopause at 26, to how I can't make tears anymore because of complications to transplant, to how I was uninsured when I was diagnosed, but because I was in Massachusetts, a state with progressive health laws, I received a life-saving treatment and never saw a bill. Now I'm examining how my race played a part how I looked like the majority of my doctors and nurses. When I told Professor Hammonds this, she brought up an article about how Serena Williams had to fight to get doctors and nurses to take her symptoms seriously after childbirth. She had blood clots in her lungs. Probably the most recognizable athlete in the world, probably one of the best athletes in history. She had a very difficult Pregnancy, And what it says in the article is she talks about how her doctors would not listen to her. Who would not be paying attention to what Serena Williams has to say? The difference between you and Serena Williams is not her uh, Wimbledon titles. It's that you had doctors who were listening to you. And she had doctors who at a very late moment finally did. I saw this happen to Tarika. It was a few years before she died. Complications brought her back to the hospital. She was in bed, and my husband and I were sitting on a bench against the wall. A white doctor came in with updates on Tarika's treatment, but as he spoke, he trained his eyes on the two white people in the room. My husband and I avoided his gaze. We looked at Tarika, we looked at the ground, but he didn't change his focus. He didn't even ask if Tarika was okay with us being in the room before he started sharing her medical details. Why, why would he do that? Right. I say that with certain irony, but, but that's it. She's not, she, she, they can't see 
what they cannot see. Tarika used to kid me about what she called my first world mentality. But only while reporting this story have I really come to realize what she meant. I view things from a place of privilege. I expect things to go a certain way. I expect to be treated with respect. Tarika laughed at my outrage over the doctor, but she agreed to let me complain to the hospital. The next day, she told me that the hospital's patient advocate came to talk with her, that she was a black woman, and that she sat down and they commiserated over how they have to deal with this kind of thing all the time. I, I, it happens all the time. Because racism has always been a part of American medicine. Professor Hammond says that when people think about racism in medicine, they focus on a few signature examples. Like James Marion Sims, the father of gynecology, who operated without consent or anesthesia on enslaved Black women. Or the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, a study run by the federal government on African-American men who were never told they had syphilis and never given penicillin to treat it. So you have these episodes that are often referred to and people you know, react in, in horror, horror, outrage, outrage. Many people who are trained as physicians say, that's not regular medicine. That's not how we do our work on a day-to-day basis. But those examples are flashpoints of the deeper systemic issues that produce the kinds of disparities that we're talking about. The disparities aren't just produced by socioeconomic conditions. They're also produced by the activities and the beliefs and practices of medical professionals. Professor Hammond says it's time medical schools teach the history of racism in American medicine. She says today's med students are eager for this information because we're not separate from that history. We've never been separate from it. It's present in the very marrow of our society. And if you don't believe it, all you need to do is ask, who was more likely to live and who was more likely to die of blood cancer? You've been listening to A Perfect Match on the BBC World Service, produced and presented by me, Ibi Caputo, editing and sound design by Ben Shapiro. A Perfect Match was produced in association with New York University's Reporting Award and the Wickers Radio and Audio Funding Award. Does your economy seem sluggish? Are your interest rates feeling abnormally low? Your economy might be exhibiting symptoms of a -a once-in-a-lifetime recession. Ask your podcast provider about a twice-weekly dose of Planet Money. The economy can be perplexing. NPR's Planet Money can help.